Oh Lord, we do ask you to help us to be faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. Preserve us from pride and arrogance and deceit. Oh Lord, but give us a, a single-mindedness for the kingdom of God that we are in every aspect of life to seek first the kingdom of God. Whether that's in our own lives, our family lives, our congregational life, our community life, it is the kingdom of God that you placed as the first priority. Oh Lord, teach us how to honor that. And I pray that as we deal with this subject of responsibility, Lord, that you will teach us how to embrace it with a boldness and an intentionality that is unique to this culture that we live in because it just flows from the throne of grace. In Jesus' name, amen. So... <clears throat> The subject here is the lifestyle of responsibility, God's pathway to freedom. Jesus asked the question, Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Fairly good question, don't you think? And <clears throat> so we're going to, to deal with this subject uh, in Luke uh, chapter 6, and we're going to be going around uh, doing a number of, uh, of scriptures. <clears throat> and that's where that, that particular saying come from. The, the, the pathway, God's pathway to freedom is through responsibility. And remember, if we're faithful, all of these things tie together, by the way. And I don't think you guys, you're all a pretty sharp bunch, so you're not going to miss this. But if you're faithful in little, what does God do? He gives you more. Increases your responsibility. Okay, So what this is, session is about, and I'm going to try to be timely here. I've, I've recognized I've been going over a little bit, and I apologize. But what I want to do here is I want to encourage us to look up to the God of heaven and say, Lord, make me a responsible man. Everything about me I want people around me to say about Tim Yarborough, that man is responsible. He doesn't look to shift responsibilities or blames. One of the principles that God taught me through this in running a company is that if I had a client call me and something went wrong, my immediate response to them is this. You have got a hold of the right person because I am responsible. I may not even know what went on. I'm sure I'll find out. But that man was looking for a point of contact that wasn't trying to act like a worm and slime out of it. That's you and me. We are disciples of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are the responsible people. God's position of responsibility always produces this one thing the grown-ups in the room. Always, always, there are no exceptions to the fact that faithful Christianity produces the grown-ups in the room. And we ought to embrace from the get-go 
This whole concept that we are the responsible people. That's it. We don't even have to have the discussion. We're the responsible people. In Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 43, this is kind of really ambiguous. It's kind of mushy and it's hard to figure this out. But listen to how mushy this is. For a good tree brings forth, not forth, corrupt fruit. Hard to figure that out, isn't it? I mean, it's just kind of soft peddling. A good tree brings not forth corrupt fruit. Neither does a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Just mushy as all get out, isn't it? Okay. For every tree is known by his own fruit. Does God expect you and I to understand the fruit of our own life and the life of others? Every tree is known by his own fruit. For of thorns men do not gather figs, nor of a bramble bush gather they grapes. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth that which is good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth that which is evil. For of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. And then Jesus makes that great declaration, And why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And we're going to come back and pick up some of the other verses, but first... This idea of responsibility in the book of James, James is, it, it has to be probably my favorite book in the Bible, if, if, if there is such a thing. But in that, it's always the first book that we do in our mentoring class where the young men, the young ladies, they must copy it out by hand. Now the reason we do that is because there's a fundamental foundation in the book of James that's essential for any maturity to ever happen in the Christian life. In verse 12, it says there, every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. Okay. So when you and I are tempted, what's the foundation of that? That's on me. Now, the sooner that I can deal with that and accept that as absolute, I'm going to be better equipped to deal with the problems that flow from it. Right? So every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Now, God does not do away with the power of enticement. However, the enticement is only revealing how you deal with your lust, how I deal with my lust. In the book of Proverbs chapter 1, there's this group of guys, the sinners will say to you, come, right? If sinners entice thee, consent thou not. In order for enticement to have any power over us, you and I have to consent. We have to consent. 
Now, the way this plays out, and here's how we try to avoid the responsibility of it. And brothers, what I'm talking about is a, is a life where we just embrace absolute responsibility. I am responsible. I'm responsible for my thoughts. I'm responsible for my speech. I'm responsible for, for my behavior. There is no one else responsible for that but me. But we always try to find some way to scapegoat out of this. Now, why do we do that? You know, like, Kevin made me angry. Daniel frustrated me. None of which is true. So what if God, in His good providence, decided to send Kevin, and Kevin just gets up in my face and just eats me alive? Whether he's right or wrong. How I respond to that is the key. He can't be the instrument of my own sin. Okay. Frustrations. We get frustrated because we consent to it, whatever the circumstances. Now, if I saw those circumstances as coming from the hand of God by a primary cause, What's the likelihood that I'm going to be as frustrated with God's providence as it was if I saw that Daniel did it? You think there might be a difference in how I react to those two different scenarios? Yeah. So, when we talk about being responsible people, the reason we do that, if we go back to the Garden of Eden, right, and Eve said, the serpent deceived me, right? And Adam, I mean, he upped the ante in this poker game because he said, the woman you gave me, okay? So who was at fault here? God, okay? And, and so we're, we're always looking for someone else to tote the blame it's the believer who has matured in Christ who says, no. No. I am responsible. That's it. The temptation is, in different environments, is to say other people aren't being responsible, therefore that gives me a reason not to be responsible. True or not true? It's not true. You and I are under command of Jesus Christ. So what if God decided to put me among a group of people who were irresponsible to, to determine my true character? You think He might do that? And in that, He would reveal to me the reality, wouldn't He? You are just like them. And of course, in my pharisaical righteousness, right, I would justify myself as being different. Right? Isn't that how we do it? That's the way it works. <clears throat> so, as Christians here, we, we see in the book of James this uh, principle played out, you and I are responsible. Now, <clears throat> when we talk about that, Jesus said, why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? So I want to play this out in some scenarios that the Scriptures give to us, starting in the book of James. 
And let's get God's description of you and I under the scenarios that he gives us. Okay? God says in James 1, 22 through 25, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a natural man beholding his natural face in a glass. For he beholdeth himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he was. But whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deed. So if I am a hearer of the Word of God, but I am not a doer of the Word of God, what is the Lord's testimony about my character? Yeah. I am a deceived man. Right? That's what God tells me. He says, Tim, if this is you, you are deceived. So, James here points out to us that the point of hearing the Word of God is to learn how to change our conduct to comply. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? Now, if we go to, for instance, uh, back into Luke, <clears throat> and we pick up in Luke 6 at 47, listen to this. The principle is, 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 is stated here again. The Lord Jesus is talking. He said, Whoso comes, comes to me and hears my saying and does them, I will show you who he's like. He said, now, if a guy comes to me and he hears my sayings and he does them, let me tell you what this fellow's like. I'm going to give you my analysis of who this character is. And here's what he says. He is like a man which built a house and dig deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood arose and the stream, the stream beat vehemently upon that house and could not shake it, for it was founded upon a rock. Okay, so we have this picture of this guy who heard the sayings of Christ and he does them. In other words, it converts over into lifestyle practice. And God says, I want to explain to you what this guy is like. The guy who does my sayings is like someone who has a solid rock foundation. Of course, we hear the sermons, right? The rock is Christ. Okay. But it's because this guy is walking in what God has commanded him to do. His lifestyle is reflective of who his master is. Okay. No man can serve two masters. Okay. But he that hears and does not. Now, what is one thing we know about the guy who hears and doesn't do? We already know about his character. He's deceived, right? So here's this guy. He hears and he doesn't do it. It's like a man that without a foundation built a house upon the earth against which the stream did beat vehemently, and immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. So here's this person. They both had the advantage of hearing, didn't they? 
What was the difference? One put it into practice. The other one did not. In other words, it was good soulless. He loved the knowledge, but he wasn't going to practice it. Why call ye me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? And so this, this guy, he was like a, a man who uh, built a house, but it was without a foundation. Now, I can tell you a little bit about building houses without foundations because in my family, there was a house that was built back 50-something years ago, and there was no foundation. Now, what's really interesting about it, as it began to move and cracks begin to show up right in the walls and all this stuff. They had a foundation company come in and try to shore up a non-existing foundation. Guess what happened? Oh yeah, it didn't work. So let's double down. They had another company come in to shore up the non-existing foundation. And then they tore the house down. Because there was nothing there for it to be rooted on. So the, the, the picture that we get here, brothers, is this. Is that, you remember I asked you about people's pressures and problems and somehow every one of you were able to get into those categories? It's incredible. I mean, there were no exceptions. And under the stress of life, as you go along, you are going to face people, pressures, and problems. Now, where was the reality of these people's faith demonstrated? It's when the storms came, right? And the winds blew and, and it, was, it was violent. And it was then that the reality of their faith was discovered of what they've been doing. Now, this guy started practicing what he was commanded to do long before the storms came, the really violent ones. Okay? That's important. So, <clears throat> if we go to Matthew 7, we find the same thing. But I want to go back to the book of Ezekiel. Uh, and, I, and I want to, to demonstrate this from a story there. <clears throat> And here we have, have the story. I want you to listen to this because this is, this is just so appropriate for us in Western culture, in Western civilization. Remember God's testimony so far is that when we hear the Word of God and we do the Word of God, we're not a deceived people. But if we don't do what we're commanded to do, we are a deceived people. If we do what God commands us to do, it continuously gives us strength to weather the storms that are going to come. Because we're practiced in doing what God commands. If we don't do it when the storms come, we're going to collapse. Life is going to collapse. In the book of Ezekiel, if you know the story, uh, guys, if you start with Isaiah and you go from Isaiah and you go to Ezekiel, you're covering a period of about 200 years uh, where Israel and Judah wind up over in the Babylonian captivity. And there is a, if you go through these books and, and some of the minor prophets, there's this description of the character of this people that is incredibly similar 
And you know how we hear that eyewitnesses are not reliable, you know, then they, they've done these tests where they have an event that occurs, you know. And uh, in, in the police academy, there, a guy was teaching, and while the students are sitting there, it's their first class, and all of a sudden the police officer comes in, and there's a guy behind him who's shooting. And the police officer drops to the ground. He's been shot. The guy runs out, and everybody's... Right? And then the police officer gets up and leaves the room. And everybody has to write a description of the assailant. He was everywhere from five foot five to six foot four. And they were sitting as close as, you know. And the descriptions were incredible. But in, from Isaiah to Ezekiel, the description of the rulers and of the priests and the prophets and the people remained consistent over all that time. They were a religious people eaten alive with covetousness. Their whole culture was dominated by, by covetousness. However, they were not irreligious people. And here's the description. In uh, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 30, this is what it says. Also thou son of man, talking to Ezekiel, the children of thy people still are talking against thee by the walls and in the doors of the houses, and speak one to another. All right, they're talking against you by the walls and the doors of the houses and speak one to another, because, you know, Ezekiel was like pointing out their sins and, oh, you know, just things like that. And, and, and speaking one to another and every one to his brother saying, Come, I pray you, and hear what is the word that comes from the Lord. So here these people are, they're talking about the prophet, right, and, and, and all that, and they said, let's go and hear the word from the Lord. And they come unto you as the people come, and they sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goes after their covetousness. And lo, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. For they hear thy words, but they do not do them. This is a description of a people who were very religious. They attended religious ceremonies. They, 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 they listened and they heard the preaching. But the thing that happened is it never got converted into their conduct. And you remember hearing something similar to this the Lord Jesus spoke about in the New Testament? A group of people. And He talks about them that with their mouths, right, they... they, they, they Honor me, but with their hearts, they're far from me. And so the indictment here is where we are hypocritical in how we embrace life. And so we don't want to do that. We don't want to be a people who are hypocritical. We want to be a people who are commanded of Christ. We want Him to say to us, Instead of, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? 
What we want to hear from the lips of Christ is, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joys of the Lord. That's the testimony we want. In order for that to happen, we have to be a responsible people. And I always use this because I like it. It's, it's, it's humorous in a way, but God only requires us to be obedient in three areas of life. And we can do whatever we want with the rest. Those three areas are every thought, every word, and every deed. But beyond that, we're at total liberty to write our own rules. Okay? I mean, he goes so far as to say every idle word that Tim Yarborough speaks, he will give an account of. Wow. So we want to be the responsible people in the room. We want to be the grown-ups. That's why this issue of trust is so important. It's why this issue... I mean, if I'm in a room with a bunch of other Christians uh, or unbelievers, what's the general theme of where their worldview is going to be. They're going to take secondary causes, aren't they? And they're going to make that the filtering for their worldview. But the grown-up in the room says, No! No! I am going to see the hand of God behind every single thing in history. Did you know that that worldview is the theme of Romans 9? That is the theme of Romans 9. And what we have a tendency to want to do is to question God. And we say, that's not fair. I wonder if Paul assumed that question was going to come forward. It's almost like he thought it would because he said, you're going to say, that's not fair. Okay? And so now we're going to, in this area of responsibility, we're going to deal with how do you and I deal with primary cause and secondary cause and looking at it? <clears throat> and it has to do with how we respond to how we are commanded. If you and I can see ourselves, I am bought with a price. I am not my own. I belong to Him and He has the right to command me every how He wants to. That means when I'm in the boardroom, I have a commander. Now, one of my greatest enjoyments, as I look back on it, and my wife just thought this was fantastic, but I went into a board meeting, and in this particular board meeting, uh, I said, well, I've, I've got to address this. And they said, why is that? And I said, well, you guys may not be aware of this, but I'm actually a contracted slave. It got dead silent in that room. It was awesome. And I thought, this setup is working. <laughs> and I said, I, I have a master who has absolute rights over me, and that includes while I'm here, and he's given me some commands as it relates to the issues before us. And so I have to be faithful to my master in order to honor him. And, and I laid out some biblical principles uh, that our, our proposed uh, employee handbook or ethical guide was just horrible. I mean, it was, it, was, it was really bad. And so finally, somebody gets around to asking me the question. 
Well, who is your master? Glad you asked. <laughs> and I happen to know that about half that room was professing Christians. And I said, my master actually redeemed me. I was in a really bad place. And he came along and he redeemed me with a price and delivered me out of that bondage of slavery that I was in. That's why. And there was a couple of sparks that began to, to go off. And I said his name was Jesus Christ. Now, I was told at that meeting, I said, well, you know, you can't bring your religion here into the boardroom. I said, okay, we have a problem. Because you are, but you don't want me to. Because you get your ethics from somewhere, right? And wherever you get your ethics is the standard that you use. And that standard has to come from somewhere. And I'm telling you up front that mine comes from the Bible and I want to be as faithful to it as I can and to Jesus Christ. So I guess the only thing left to do is to determine by what standard have you arrived at your ethic. And he said, well, what I think is good for the company. And so we had that conversation, right? So the question is, am I responsible while I'm there to be obedient to God's commands? I am. I'm a commanded individual. We're own. So... Uh, <clears throat> You and I, in whatever phase of life we are, we're, we're commanded. Now, I want to show you how responsibility creates freedom. Number one, dads, when your children fulfill their duties and responsibilities and their chores without all the squabble and all that, right? What happens to the level of freedom they are allowed? Goes up, doesn't it? Okay? So when you and I manage our relationships well, and we govern them according to God's Word, what happens to our relationships? They become freer, don't they? And our relationships become more fulfilling. When you and I handle our finances appropriately according to God's Word, what happens to our options in life? We, we have greater freedom. We have greater options in our lives. When we govern ourselves... And the scripture says to you and I, he that hath no control over his own spirit is like a city broken down and without walls. Okay? Now, when my life is broken down without walls and I'm spewing anger or bitterness or whatever, what happens to my freedom? It begins to constrict, doesn't it? But the more that I control my spirit, and anger doesn't get the best of me, and I don't say stupid stuff. What happens to my freedoms? They become wider, more enjoyable. In other words, responsibility is God's pathway to liberty, to freedom. Now, when you mishandle your finances, what happens to your options? They decrease, don't they? So your, your level of freedom, our freedom potential, is diminished, not increased. Okay? So if, like, with, with some of the, 
uh, counseling that we do, and people will say to me, like, they, they have habits that they can't afford. Okay. And I say, okay, you, responsibly, you need to get rid of those habits because here's how much that means to you and money and et cetera, et cetera. That will increase your options. And they will say something to me, deep insight, like, I don't want to. Okay. And I'm like, great. That is awesome. If you want to live in that prison, you have the liberty to do so, but I'm not going to join you. And not only that, if you're not willing to change this, don't come back and ask me how to help you get out of a situation that you are intentionally cultivating so that you can live in a prison of your own making. I have no power to do that. Okay? Now, I have had people who got upset because I didn't have the power to create magic. Okay? Because they did not... The re, here's the reality. They didn't want to be responsible for themselves. And brothers, you and I can't do that for other people. I think that was probably one of the greatest liberties that God taught me is that I cannot be responsible for you. Because in my lifetime, what happened was this. You may be able to identify with this. Is that I would build expectations for this brother's life. We were growing together and, 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 and I would build expectations. And you know, for some strange reason, he never could meet all my expectations. And I would build my life emotionally on this. Now, intellectually, I knew I couldn't do it, right? That wasn't the problem. It wasn't my intellect. I was emotionally attached to my expectations. And then when God didn't change him to meet my expectations, I would claim I got frustrated with him, which wasn't true. What it was is I was disappointed in God's performance of my expectations. Okay? And so going through this, what I learned was, is that there's a line you and I cannot cross. You and I cannot be responsible for other people's choices. So what we can do is realize that this is of God's doing. All right? Now, when I say that, Whatever increase or lack of increase, I can plant, I can water. I, in fact, I'm commanded to do so. But who gives the increase? God. I have no jurisdiction there. I have no authority. In fact, I don't even have a command. So what happened in my life when I began to give those up, in other words... When I moved over to that territory, I wanted to be as God, determining good and evil for other people. God's already set a standard for good and evil. He just asked me, commands me over here to go plant and go water. And once the Lord broke my desire to be as God for other people, what happened is I was, begin, I was able to then begin to pray, Lord, make me a better planter, make me a better water, make me a better planter, a better water. And I begin to focus on planting and watering. And you know what I discovered? I discovered that if I focused on what God commands me, that He will actually give me the wisdom and help me to perform those things that He has commanded me to do. But as long as I was focusing on what God required of Himself 
or what only He can do. It was a frustrating thing to be a planner in a water because all my planning and watering was built on the basis of being God. And it wasn't working. So, the thing that we learn in our responsibility is that we do what we are commanded. And this is the secret to how, I say secret, sometimes I, that, that's a marketing word that's really um, interesting. Uh, you know, the five secrets to how to live a happy life from the guy who's been divorced five times. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but there, there are a couple of scriptures that I want to, to help with, but the idea that we are to be responsible to what we are commanded. Responsibility, the more that we embrace responsibility, the greater our freedoms. Now, this also works in the field of sexuality. I, uh, in the last 12 years, uh, I didn't have to deal with this very much before the last 12 years. About 2008, uh, I, before then, a lot of the young men who were coming and the young women who were coming and we were mentoring and working with them, we just didn't have a big problem with pornography. Now, I know others say that they, they did, but since 2008, it has been like an explosion. Now, fellas, let me tell you about pornography. You cannot serve two masters. Don't kid yourself. And not only that, you are stealing from your future. We have forgotten the simple joys of holding hands. Or I can remember the delight when I was first married of walking with my wife and having my arm around her. Pornography destroys the beauty of human relationships. And I will tell you this, that inside marriages, pornography has done more damage now, it's not pornography per se. It's the lust that it stirs up. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust. And you see these exotic things and all these descriptions and things that go on. And your wife wants to be a wife. She wants to be loved. She wants to be cared for. She wants to be honored. And if your lust is so stirred up, that the hand-holding, the conversations, the sitting at the table doesn't give you the glory of God's covenant relationship. You have not only stole from her, you have stolen from yourself. And the damage is incredible. So, <clears throat> I want to take just a, a break here. If I can, I want to tell you a story. I tell our young people, I go out, into like the Walmart parking lots or I'll go to wherever the young people hang out and I'll walk up to them. Now it's 10, 11 o'clock. Well, in my community, they hang out at Walmart because there's not anything else to do. <clears throat> and, and they get in trouble in the parking lots of Walmart. Okay? Sometimes the football games and I'll go down there and I'll walk up to them and I, I'm kind of known in my community. It's not a, a big community. There's 34,000 people in my county 
And, and so, and I've been there my whole life. I mean, I'm just like a bad turnip. I just, they just can't get me out of the field. I lived eight <laughs> miles from where I was born and raised. Okay? So I'm known. And, and we've been involved with a lot of things. So I walk up to these young people and I say, hey, how y'all doing tonight? And they'll look at you because, you know, they kind of suspect I'm an older guy. And I'll say, let me ask y'all a question. Would y'all be interested to know how sex is tied to economics? I have just struck the two golden cords of the teenage years. Hey? Yeah. Now, so let me tell you a story about sex and economics. Because, fellas, here's the end result. And I'm going to go back and tell the story, but the end result is this. We want sex without consequences. In God's design, that's never true. Never. And I'll, I'll demonstrate that. If you're not familiar with God's law related to sexuality, there's a pattern in it that demonstrates this wonderful concept. But anyway, I tell them, I said, well, <clears throat> here's the deal. You hear all the women today say there are no good men. Hear that a lot, don't you? Right? So, uh, I said, girls, is that true? And the girls are more honest than the guys. And they'll say, yeah, that's about right. I said, okay. And I said, do you want to know why from an economic perspective? And they said, well, yeah. And I said, okay, I'm going to tell you. So back around the early 50s, there was a supply chain into the marketplace for sex. But that supply chain, it had a high demand, but the supply was low except you had to meet certain criteria to get into the supply side of the market. And that was, the criteria was marriage, a job, some stability, right? And, and if you had those, that was the appropriate price to get into the supply. You could buy the supply from an economic perspective. And so the supply would be provided for the demand at the right price. Right? And so there was this, this criteria. And so then in about 1952, we kicked in something that began to change the supply and demand. It's called the birth control pill. Why did we introduce the birth control pill? Was it possible, just consider the possibility, that it might be that we wanted sex without consequences? Is it possible that that's the case? All right, so <clears throat> with that, we come along and the supply going into the marketplace increased. But what happened to the price it could command? Begin to go down. All right? And so this supply increased, the price that was be willing to be paid went down, and we come along to 1962. There was a Supreme Court case called Griswold versus Connecticut. And in that case, the Supreme Court ruled that the state had no business being in people's bedrooms as it relates to birth control. Now, there were statute laws against that. Now, whatever your position may be or not be, I'm explaining the economics of it to you, okay? And so after that, there was this explosion of sex supply into the marketplace. We called it the 60s, right? Now, some of you were not around. Uh, 
Some of us were. And this, this sex supply into the marketplace just abounded. And as the supply went up, guess what happened to the price that people were willing to pay for sex? It goes down. When supply goes up, price goes down. It's the way it works. Okay. So then we come along to 1973. What happened in 1973? Roe v. Wade. In other words, did we add another thing that says we're going to take away the consequences of sex? We did. And we began killing children. To the tune, I think, today it's somewhere around 61 million, and we've exported it all over the world. Now, after abortion came to be, what happened to the supply of sex in the marketplace? It goes up. I don't even have to make sure I get the pill on time or whatever. Okay? And so then what happens to the price people are willing to pay for sex? It goes down. All right? But then, you know, once you start saturating a market, the difficulty is is that it can't satisfy. Fellas, this is the problem with porn. Is that the more that you saturate yourself, the more difficult it is to be satisfied with a normal sex life. In fact, it's impossible. And so we come along to Lawrence v. Texas in the early 90s, which was the first broadside into increasing even more sex into the marketplace because we're dissatisfied with the other routine. Lawrence v. Texas dealt with the issue of homosexuality. And we increased the supply of sex into the marketplace. Did that satisfy our culture? It did not, did it? Then we come along and we get Obergefell. And it's enshrined as a constitutional right. And we've increased the supply of sex into the marketplace. Now, what happened to the price during that whole time that people are willing to pay? It just keeps going down, right? So, I tell that story, and I'm telling you, I have got these kids' attention. And they're like, yeah, yeah. You know, and they're a little uncomfortable, you know, about the issue of homosexuality and all that. God's not. Okay. So I say to the girls then, girls, have you always felt like setting the sexual standard is a, it has always been the pressure on you? What do you think the girls say? They say, yeah, every one of them. And I say this to the guys, I say, guys, do you think that the pressure for setting of the sexual standard in a culture is on the gals? Um, uh, you know, and I said, you fellows ever get together and talk about how many of these girls you've conquered? And they're not accustomed to that conversation happening in front of the girls. That goes on in the locker room. Right? And we have these, these conversations, and, and I, so I say to the girls, now, this is the beauty of understanding God's cultural developments, <clears throat> his social order. So I say to the girls, what if there was a system of sexual ethics that was so designed that if one of these young men seduced you before he married you, it would cost him at least a year's wages? 
Well, yeah. He would have to uphold that standard. And not only that, what if this young man, in order to get to the supply side of the sex chain, had to be prepared with having saved three years of his labor? And so therefore he's demonstrated stability, financial care, etc. And the girl, I said, what do you think about that? Yeah. yeah. So what do you think, guys? <laughs> no, no. And I said, okay. So I will tell you that there is a system like that. And I'll be back next Friday night at 10 o'clock, and I'm going to tell you about it. The next week at 10 o'clock, I will have probably double the number of young people who will come to hear this. But in God's economy, guys, it is the man who sets the sexual standard. And it was the man who God imposed the penalties on if he violated it. And one of the things that we have to do as men is that we have to re-embrace this concept, the whole idea that we're not helpless before our sex drive. We are subject to the commands of Christ and it is on us to set the standards for sexual morality in a culture. That belongs to men. Okay. And so, and we should not be ashamed of that. We should embrace that. We don't have to be rude. We don't have to be crude. But one of the most revolutionary acts that you're going to do in your lifetime is maintain God's sexual order in a culture like ours. And I don't mean just maintain it because it's essential. Maintain it because we love it. We really do. I went to a training seminar. I had to go to sensitivity training. I go in there and I talk to the trainer who's a professing Christian. And almost everybody in the room professes to be a, a, train, a, a Christian, and they're all in there for sensitivity training. And so I'm sitting like if in, in the room like this. I'm sitting like right where this gentleman is here. And um, so they, they start in on this stuff, and I said, wait, wait a minute. That's, no, that's not right. It's not in the manual. And this, this lady says, yes, it is. It's in the manual. And so we go on to the next thing. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's not right. It's not in the manual. And the lady says, yes, it's in the manual. And, and she reads it off. And, and it, this goes on for a little bit. And finally, we have a break. And I go up and, and I look at the lady and I said, I, I don't see any of that in the manual. And the lady says, here it is right here. I said, oh, ma'am, I am so sorry. I have been so out of place here because, you see, you told me you were a Christian. And everybody else here told me you were a Christian. And I thought, and I had brought my Bible up, this was the manual we were going to use as Christians. And I see you've chosen to use a different manual. It was dead silent in that room. And I got asked to leave. <laughs> and I did. Uh, but the point was made that somebody had adopted a different law 
and they were trying to get me to be compelled by my conscience. And if that doesn't work, what I should expect is there's going to be some coercion coming along. Right? So, in, in the book of Isaiah, when we talk about secondary causes, there's this tremendous scripture as we get to this, and I'm going to be wrapping up here shortly. My point that I want to make, brethren, is that we are commanded people and we must be responsible to do what God commands us. If we look into the history of Christendom, there have been tremendous times of great persecutions of Christians for taking stands. Now, I happen to think that we're sitting in a place where we have more tools available to us to recapture a culture than at any other time in history. And I, I also think that business will probably be one of those great engines within the context of congregations of believers. In Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29, it says to us, The secret things belong unto the Lord our God. Think about that. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And so when we think about this concept, the secret things belong to the Lord. And that's part of the conversation of Romans 9 as well. And there are other things that, that in the Scriptures that are the secret things of God. And I don't know about some of those things. Like, how do you explain God's sovereignty and man's responsibility? How do you reconcile those? Okay, I don't know. And I've read a lot of treatises on this stuff, and I figured this out. They didn't either. <laughs> but what I know is that God's Word teaches both. So the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things which are revealed belong to who? To us and to our children that we may obey the words of this law. And here's how it works out in reality. Over in Isaiah chapter 10, and this is why I tell you that when we deal with secondary causes, it's not that we're to be ignorant. I mean, Joseph was not ignorant. He was not naive about what happened to him. But he was motivated by a different worldview. And in Isaiah 10, chapter 5, here we see, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger. This is God talking. And the staff in their hand is mine indignation. Assyria, the rod of my anger, God says. And the staff that's in their hand is my indignation. I will send him against a hypocritical nation. And against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge. Here God is sending a pagan against his own people. And he's saying that they're my servant. They're the rod of my anger. This is who these people are. And I will give him a charge to take the spoil, to take the prey, and to tread them down like mire of the streets. Because you see, this people was the people we read about earlier. 
who went to hear the words of God, but they would not do the words of God. And then he describes the character of this Assyrian. Howbeit, he means not so, neither does his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. In other words, from one side of the coin, God says, I'm sending them to be the rod of my anger and the staff of my indignation, and they're going to deal with you, and I'm going to judge you, my people. But now let's go to the other side of the coin from the human side. And Assyria, it's not in his heart to do God's will. This is a reprobate. It's in his heart to destroy and to cut off, and yet he does God's will. I would submit to you, brothers and sisters, that this is true of every single person who comes into our life, whether they mean it or don't mean it. They are sent by the hand of God. And if we can see the hand of God and be responsible to do what God requires of us, We will be a people who will gather strength that is incredible. The joy of the Lord will be our strength. So if I were to say to you, give me a working definition of responsibility, what would you say? Okay. I'm going to give you mine. And these things are really great to work through, guys, because typically... When I first started out doing this, I found myself starting from the human side of the coin. Right? So I would start defining it from the human side and go up. As the Lord began to mature me, I quit that. And I began to start with God coming down. Responsibility is the will, desire, and ability to react. As God says man should react to every life situation in spite of the people, the pressures, the problems. That's my definition, working definition of responsibility. I can. <laughs> I, I should have known that. <laughs> responsibility is the will desire, and ability to react as God says man should react to every life situation in spite of the people, the pressures, and the problems. In other words, if I'm a responsible person, I'm going to react to every situation in life according to what God commands me. There are two questions that I use, and those of you that have been around me, you know these two questions. They are fundamental to how we draft up our lifestyle plans. Being responsible has led me to, or God encouraging me to be responsible, the pathway to freedom. It's easy to see how God's ways leads us to greater freedoms. It's not hard. 
to see that. But there are two questions that God led me, and these are what all of my workbooks uh, consist of. Number one, what does God require me to think about that? Whatever that is, whatever the subject is, what does God require me to think about that? Okay. Once I can figure out, if I don't know, I can tell God I don't know. It's okay. That's why he wrote me a manual. And he wrote you a manual, wrote my brothers and sisters a manual. And that's why reading other Christians is really good, because God teaches them too, and through them, He teaches us. What does God require me to think about that? And then the second one is, what is the wisest way to implement what God requires me to think about that? What is the wisest way to implement what God requires me to think about that? And the reason that's important, brothers, in, uh, is, is because uh, last year uh, I shared with you about how sometimes we can look back on life with regret, and that's the wrong perspective. All of those things that whatever happened in your past did not happen without the decree of God. It did not. God is using it. If you use it appropriately, God will use it for your uh, growth, your maturity. Uh, but when we, we look at these things in terms of the growth and, 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 and uh, our, our maturity in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can look at those things. And I can say today at 62, there are things that I did at the, at the age of 40 that I would do differently today. And it's not what I did was wrong. But sometimes there's a wise way one, a wise way two, and a wise way three. What we don't want to do is we don't want to get over into the foolish category. Okay? And so today I would choose wise way two, and I've had a brother who's 86 years old, and he said when you get to be my way, age, you'll do, you'll do wise way three. Okay? Because it's what God has given me. It's the knowledge God has given me now. And, and to do that. And so don't regret those things. Grow in them. And just love responsibility. Embrace it, no matter what anybody else around you does. Remember, we are the grown-ups in the room. Father, Lord, I so desire for me and my brothers that you have redeemed, that you will make us such lovers of responsibility to react to all of life's situations according to your commandments, that we will simply love being obedient servants of Jesus Christ. That the greatest joy in our life is to hear you say to us, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. Lord, may we hear that refrain time and time and time again in the course of our lives. That we will hear our Master commend us because He has made us obedient. For Christ's sake, amen.